Hello and welcome to the Ghibli Rewatch series of the Overly Animated Podcast, where we'll be going through every Studio Ghibli movie chronologically from the beginning. I'm Dylan Heisen, and today I'm joined by Allie Martin. Hello. And April Collins. Hi there. The, yes, the Ghibli Rewatch series. Join us in rewatching or watching for the first time all the Studio Ghibli movies now that they're available for streaming for the first time on HBO Max in the United States and Netflix in most of the rest of the world. New Ghibli podcasts will be up every Wednesday as we go through the whole catalog chronologically at overlyanimated.com. Find all of our contact information there. I'm a Ghibli expert. Be joined by co-hosts with a variety of Ghibli experience as we go through the whole catalog. Today is Howl's Moving Castle. Very exciting, beloved movie. We're excited to talk about full spoilers for Howl's Moving Castle. Make sure you have seen this movie before you listen further. Minor spoilers for the rest of the Ghibli movies. Um, We'll be discussing both the subbed and dubbed versions, so whichever you have seen is fine. Uh, Time for Howl's Moving Castle, our next Yao Miyazaki movie. We're coming off of Spirited Away, and now it is 2004 when this movie is released. Um... Uh, Howl's Moving Castle, loosely based on the 1986 novel of the same name by Diana Wynne-Jones. Miyazaki, uh, maybe similar to Kiki, took over production not right in the beginning. So this was originally intended to be directed by Mamoru Hosuda, who's made a name for himself, especially recently, as a prominent anime director in Japan. Uh, but he, they he didn't like the direction. Miyazaki took over. We've seen this before. Um, so now uh, he he makes this next major project. This is a, you know, coming off of Spirited Away, the biggest movie ever in Japan. Of course, the next Miyazaki movie. I'm going to be big, but this was definitely lived up for it. It is Still, as of now, the sixth highest grossing movie ever in Japan, Howl's Moving Castle. So this is a big Whoa. success in Japan. And then also this was a big success in uh, internationally, too, because his you know renown has spread after Spirited Away. And this was uh, very successful all over the world. So Howl's Moving Castle, yes, big fantasy movie for Miyazaki coming off of Spirited Away. Um, a lot of people have attachments to this one who are our age. A lot of interesting things to talk about this one. Ali, what is your history with this movie and what do you think of it? I think I watched it for the first time just before graduating high school. And at the time, I really liked it. I, mean, I still really like it, but I think about it differently now, I guess. I remember my friend who read the book, and I know nothing about the book, told me that like it's obviously it's not the same. And she said that Sophie has like more agency were her words in the book. So since then, I was like, I don't know if I like this movie as much. But I did rewatch it again a bunch of times and today. And I still really enjoy it a lot. Um, I think Sophie's character is, I don't know about like necessary, but the way she's depicted is, I think, done very well. We're going to get into it later, but I like her a lot um, in terms of like the female protagonist that Ghibli presents. I think she's well, definitely in the top 10, but I don't know if there's like more than that that I can name. Um, animation is great. I think this was like one of the ones that stood out to me, like that goes after Spirited Away in terms of like crazy sequences that make me feel like I'm not on like the earthly plane just watching them. Uh, music is also fantastic. Uh, yeah, I really liked it. Okay fan of howls not on the earthly plane yeah i think that that sounded right to me about uh the feeling of some of these things there's one scene when they were like above the earth so like literally yeah Um, there's a few of those actually probably a few of them yeah a lot of flying and yeah okay and like port not portals but like black holes i don't know it's weird okay we'll talk about all that april what's your history with howls moving castle what do you think of the movie 
So I could have sworn that I had seen this previously because so this came out like just as I was getting into high school. And so I think that's whenever like my whole like anime thing started to like taper (laughs) off a little bit just because I was focusing on like school and everything like that. And so uh, and I, I like when I was started watching this, I was like none of this is familiar so I might as well have been watching it for the first time (laughs) um and I won't lie it took me like like I started it because I totally agree with you Allie about how like it kind of like takes you off like the earthly plane kind of (laughs) thing and so like I started watching it and then like 20 minutes in I was like oh my god, I'm not even paying attention anymore. But I'm, like, fully engrossed in this movie. And so, and so like, I just started all over again. And then, like, that happened to me again, like, 40 minutes into it. And I was just like, what is happening to me during this movie? Because it's not, like, a bad movie in any way, shape, or form. I was just, like, very distracted by what was going mm. on and what I was seeing. Um, which I, I don't know if that's a good thing or a Distracting bad thing. is a good way to describe it, though. That's a good point. Yeah. Like, like I even told you guys, I was like, this is the third time I've restarted this movie. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but I definitely liked Sophie as a character. Um, you know, she's a really good female protagonist. I, I mean, I, I thought it was beautiful. I thought the music was, like, paired with it nicely. You kind of got a lot of, like, um like kiki's vibes in terms of like the music like because there was like once i don't know what the song was but i was just like am i watching kiki's right now because i'm not like (laughs) so so there's like the like those things are definitely going for it um like i guess it i i don't know if maybe like i just missed some of the themes or i don't i like i enjoyed the movie and i thought it was really like well done but i feel like i lost the plot and i was just like what happened in this movie like at the end of it so but we could talk more about that later okay we'll talk about that i don't think you lost it uh well that's uh, that's a thing we'll talk about (laughs) okay um yeah i and oh yeah kiki that's a definitely a lot of comparisons to kiki another european inspired fantasy world from miyazaki um similar production kind of history maybe the sound the look steampunkiness maybe a little similar so i think there's a lot of similarities um so I'm, i must have seen this pretty early on with all the ghibli movies just because it was so prominent around that time i don't have strong associations with howls um i know and i definitely want to acknowledge later on in the podcast people a lot of people i think we know do have strong associations with howls especially like women who were growing up around when this movie came out in America. I um, think it's a very prominent movie for a lot of people. Um, for me, wasn't the one of the ones that I was super attached to with Miyazaki movies. I kind of always had the thought like, this is a good movie, but not necessarily as good as any of the other Miyazaki movies we've covered thus far in the Ghibli rewatch series. That's kind of my impression going into this rewatch. Um, I would feel similarly, you know, after I think rewatching it here. But I, I think like... Uh, You can forget, I think, how magical this movie is. I think magical, like, similar to Spirited Away. This is, you know, coming right off of Spirited Away. I don't think this movie is Spirited Away, but I think I felt similarly emotionally watching it a lot of times as I do watching Spirited Away. And that's, like, for me, its biggest strength is just the... It really does capture... Even if it's not as much of a complete unit as Spirited Away, I mean, what is, but uh, it, it has... It evokes the same sense of uh magic and 
these uh, these crazy emotions that I think you can feel from Miyazaki at his most magical. Um, I a few points in the middle of the movie. I was like, you know, got a little bit, I guess, deja vu. Like, I didn't remember this, uh, these scenes from this movie because I hadn't rewatched recently. And I was just like, oh man, this this scene, like, wow, I have like strong emotional associations with this scene. Like, this is uh, really uh, evoking um, a lot from the past for me. And then uh, experiencing again was a pretty a pretty strong, I think, experience. So um, that I think that was like the the best part of of rewatching it now. And if you haven't watched it in a while, I think maybe you could evoke similar feelings from someone who's watched it a long time ago. Um, my experience kind of with towels is like, I'm kind of bored in the beginning. Um, and <laughs> okay, then but I'm not the only one. Then there's like an hour, which I think is like pure magic of this movie. Um, mm-hmm. love it. Then the third act, which, uh, <laughs> we, speaking of Kiki's, this is actually my biggest comparison to Kiki's. Miyazaki sometimes has had problems with third acts. Like my least favorite part of Kiki's is the third act, the ending. Um, I think this movie uh, has a final act that does not make any sense. And yeah. that is what you'll frequently hear criticism wise of Howells is that the plot is really not there. Um, Thank goodness. Because <laughs> I was Thanks, like, going to feel so bad if I was the only person who was like, I, I'm like, I, I shot I it. it was, it's still the sixth highest grossing film in Japan. And it was apparently like a flop when it came out or it something. Was <laughs> it was definitely not a flop. Uh, this is financially successful across the board, especially in Japan. Um, I think people did really like this, but there was some criticisms. We'll talk about that. Uh, you know, there's some people at the time when it came out who are like, this is a lot worse narratively than Miyazaki's previous movies. But mostly, I think it has always had very positive reception. Um, but, you know, I think as you get into like the Ghibli uh, big, big fans, you'll hear a lot of like howls crit about the plot of this movie. So uh, that's something we'll want to address for sure. And I don't think it's necessarily even in-depth criticism. It's just like the ending of this movie that it doesn't make sense. And if you're looking at this as a a strong like narrative uh, script based, like that's not what this is. It's going to be a lot more of an emotional thematic experience. Um, and I think if you want to connect on it to mostly that level, it, it is, which I think I was able to watching it and I always have been able to, I think it's there, but ultimately, you know, I think it probably, um, because of, of some of the issues, uh, plot wise, which is, I think shockingly are not there for previous Miyazaki movies. We can talk about that a little bit. Um, I do think it maybe feels like a little bit of a step down from some of his previous works, but I also think it has this like magic, which, uh, is, not always there for his previous movies and is uh, particularly intense, I think, in the middle of this movie. And, and, and at the end, too. There's some great scenes at the end. It's just, you know, all tied together. You're left kind of wondering what's going on. Yeah. It's kind of yeah. sometimes it feels like too much, but that's also how I felt about Spirited Away, and I still enjoyed it. So mm-hmm. Spirited Away, I think the, one of the biggest differences is it retains a strong Absolutely. sense of logic in terms of yeah. what is happening. <laughs> Quote unquote um, and, logic. And uh, it's, it, it, which is interesting because Spirited Away is stuff that makes it's all random stuff that uh, is not in depth, but it's all really tied together very tightly narratively. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. and, and then you get to Howells, and uh, there's you get a lot of stuff kind of thrown at the end that is not have that same and you look at and they're maybe not that far off when you think about it just because it's not like Miyazaki does not have these narratively driven movies we can talk about this first since we're on the topic um Miyazaki's <laughs> yeah. process as far as I know Powell's probably makes a lot more sense when you think of it like this he does not do a script like he goes yeah. he, he makes an image board 
Uh, he just draws. He starts by drawing key images from like his, his he, that he's inspired to draw about the story he wants to tell. He starts to flesh it out, adds the image board, and then he goes straight into storyboards. Then he starts storyboarding scenes straight from his image board. So I've always been really impressed that Miyazaki is capable of having these really narratively uh, excellent films. Um, at the, the very yeah. least, narratively competent. I think it's more of a shock that it's taken this long for him to get to a movie that doesn't really make sense. Like, uh, how does he have, how does he have ten movies before this with like kind of no script i think it's pretty impressive um and you know it's, uh, you know it's a movie he takes over later in production i think it's pretty easy to see once you think of it in that sense how how it kind of arrives at uh at this point considering his creative process um but yeah i mean that's definitely something you'll um you'll hear a lot about is is narratively but also i do want to emphasize like i do think this is a very beloved movie and i think a lot of people have strong associations with this movie loved it growing up um, I think uh, people were really into the Sophie Howell romance, into Howell as a character when they're kids. God, we have to get into Howell. I feel later. like I feel like that's definitely a thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like I can see people being very, very into it, and like I, I, I'm, I guess like one of like the memories I have of this movie is like it's from three-ish years ago. And I had a coworker, and for Halloween, she dressed up as Sophie. And because she's like, I loved this movie growing up. And I was like, wow, how old am I? Like, so. <laughs> was she like old, old lady? Old Sophie? Sophie? Yeah. Or yeah. young Sophie? Yeah, she, she was old lady Sophie. Yes, okay. queen. That's probably the oh way to God. go. I think that's <laughs> the costume. I'm proud of her. Yeah. <laughs> That that aspect, Sophie is like an old woman for most of the movie. Definitely a prominent thing we want to talk about, um, mm-hmm. and kind of the anti-warness of the movie. That's another prominent thing. Let me let me read the uh, talking about the overall quality. Um, here's a bringing a quote from Susan Napier. Starts negatively, gets positively. Her just citing people's reactions. Um, so this is from Susan Napier's novel Miyazaki World, um, which I frequently reference on the podcast. She says, admittedly, some critics in Japan and elsewhere had issues with its quality, finding it hard to understand. More recently. Shunsuke Sugita has called the movie a failure. To these critics, Miyazaki's single-minded portrait of melodrama combined with war was rough-edged work, difficult to comprehend, awkwardly tied together, uh, and with a forced and artificial happy ending. On the yes. whole, uh, she says, on the whole, I tend to agree with Seiji Kano's positive assessment of how as a work more poetic than narrative, stringing together a tapestry of images to create a multifaceted whole. Overall, it remains an idiosyncratic and appealing creation, ambitious and angry, while offering indelible visions of solace, beauty, and love. Accurate. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think Susan Napier sums up well, and she says, you got to look at it more poetic than narrative. Yeah. It's yeah. a tapestry of images, um, which I think all of Miyazaki's movies are, but you might most cite this movie as a tapestry of images with so many kind of disparate uh, visually iconic scenes. Yeah. Yeah, Hallie, what, what, what do you think of uh, the, the, the criticism aspect of this and, and the overall assessment? I mean, now, having watched it just today, I'm tempted to <laughs> go with Sugita's criticism. Not that it's a failure, but that especially the happy ending feels really like it's cringe to me now. Like, I really enjoyed it the first time watching it when I was, like, 18, but now I'm like, this is so stupid like normally i'm a fan of that kind of trope also especially if it's not a hetero romance but like here it feels just kind of gross i want to know how the book went when i look at this movie and i kind of like i don't have the energy to read the book but i'm curious because i know that like sophie like i also appreciate how 
sassy for lack of a better term she is in this and she like doesn't take anybody's garbage she's like get over yourself but apparently she's more like that in the book so i want to just read that but i do agree that it's definitely more like flower not flowery like he says poetic than narrative which i don't think it's a bad thing but you do have a point that it's like really not what we're used to with miyazaki because he does like not that the narratives are like kind of shoved down your throat with like anti-war what have you but it feels less like in your face in this movie but i, I again i don't think that's bad i just it's kind of jarring yeah um i think that yeah. the one of the most uh potentially hard to palette scenes for some people is the very end when uh the the king's magi- magician Suleiman. Uh, oh, she says, uh, "Oh, I guess we we shouldn't uh, do this war anymore." <laughs> like, uh, like what is... <laughs> changed your mind? Are you serious? Just because you had your dog stalking them and you were watching them on yeah. your crystal? It's like you watch a K drama and you're like, "Well, I'm gonna go like donate to charity." What? <laughs> uh, I think it feels silly. Yeah, that it's that's so it. Yeah. St- and also, I don't know how to feel about the turnip prince guy either. Like, everyone's in love with Sophie. Even the fire is in love with Sophie. It's weird. Turn- it's just weird. The, the turnip scarecrow comes to life. Prince and uh, he's like, weird. oh, I'm a prince. Oh, and I'm going to end the war too. Um, like, yeah. like, just magically, we're going to end the war. <laughs> and she starts kissing everybody out of nowhere. and that's She like kisses, some, like, everyone. Yeah. yeah. Some sort of weird deus ex machina, she- but it's weird. <laughs> she, she's She's spreading the love, I guess. Weird. I, mean, I appreciate <laughs> that she's like grown like enough confidence to be like, uh, well, I mean, she, I don't know. She has like this nurturing characteristic throughout the movie, but it's, it's weird. I don't know. It's weird. That's all I have. Yeah. yeah. So, I, I mean, I like, I, it definitely seems silly looking at the movie as a narrative, but if you're going to look at it more as uh, thematic or poetic, then I do think you can see this ending earned with the war ending and characters kind of being um, persuaded by seeing uh, these these scenes of love and family. Um, I think that's probably the, the, the generous assessment for that. For, personally, I don't see the anti-war aspect even potentially as one of the stronger aspects of the movie regardless, but I do think like that, that, that ending definitely works a lot better if, if you're not viewing it strictly narratively. I wish I had known that it was like an anti-war movie before I watched it because then like I feel like everything would have made more sense. <laughs> like we're, you're going to I want you to read that quote about him about Miyazaki not yeah. showing up to the Okay. Movie so let, let's talk oh, about that. So let's talk about this as an anti-war crazy. movie. So now spared really it away. Like huge success. Uh nominated for an Oscar. Um wins an Oscar, which it's still the only uh, foreign language movie to win the best animated Oscar. Uh, it's like crazy at this time, which we're not even they, people don't even know like Miyazaki to the extent that they do now. He's like bursting onto the scene. It wins. Miyazaki is not there. He did not show up to the Oscars. Now, granted, it is you know very far away. But uh, he had gone to the U.S. before, um, and he did not hear. He says, uh, "Now we're in the modern period where I can like actually cite like interviews that are still up on the on the online." So that's cool. Um, so this, uh, the this online, is the online, the online, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a po- this is from Devin Gordon's Newsweek interview with Miyazaki, a positive pessimist. Um, Miyazaki got asked, "Why didn't you show up?" He says. Uh, actually, your country had just started the war against Iraq, and I had a great deal of rage about that. So I felt some hesitation about the award. In fact, I had just started to make Howl's Moving Castle, so the film is profoundly affected by the war in Iraq. 
That really what? makes me appreciate the war aspect even more. Because, like April said, like I had no idea this was a war film. <laughs> like, sure, you have the propaganda in the background, but again, it's not as in your face as like Grave of the yeah. Fireflies or what's the other one? Wind Rises, something like that. Right. So, so you talk talking yeah. about Wind Rises. I think. I mean, we're, it's it's easy. I think you want to bring in, and Napier does this in her chapter. You want to start to bring in Ponyo and Wind Rises as this kind of later Miyazaki films when you're talking about Howl's Moving Castle. Um, Ponyo relevant because like we're gonna ha- definitely have to keep in mind with that discussion the visual over narrative kind of aspect that he has in mind at this yeah. point in his career. Like, God, that movie. Sim- similar to uh, to Takahata, definitely goes visual over narrative later in life. I think this is a common. Thing the thing that they're sharing probably influenced by each other um but yeah i mean he also has these very strong anti-war sensibilities which factor into wind rises and definitely this movie which he mizaki characterizes Howl's moving castle as a reaction to the iraq war so let's like (laughs) that is the greatest thing ever (laughs) yeah that's just like oh why didn't you come to the oscars because y'all started a war like that's that's like a that's a move. I like it. It's a great move. <laughs> I can't believe he did that, but I hope more people do that. It's, I think it's right. an iconic Miyazaki move, not showing up the Oscars, do it talking like this. Uh, this is, you know, now we're, like we've been saying, we're into curmudgeonly Miyazaki now, and this is one of his, uh, <laughs> his, his biggest power moves. We love it. Um, yeah. But thinking about Howl's Moving Castle as an anti-war movie. Um, right. So there's a war right. that frames the entire movie, and... Uh, I I, th- I think that uh, you know I, I I you know you might not think of it like as this like the whole movie is about like uh, war is bad um, like Grave of the Fireflies like uh, probably that's not what he's going for but it is a big backdrop for um, the film uh, we can we can bring in Susan Napier who maybe explains some aspects of this a little better about Please. this um, <laughs> especially how how Howl is I think in largely largely supposed to be an anti war character. Mm-hmm. Um, Napier says in his depiction of Howell as a fighter and in his magnification of the war Miyazaki differs strikingly from the original book though it must be acknowledged that the war is presented in a curiously offhand manner in contrast to its charmingly detailed domestic scenes of hanging laundry or cooking breakfast the movie gets rid of the bloody reality of war and instead offers a distanced perspective while the director includes his trademarked original flying machines this time with memorably animalistic or even insect like qualities these machines are noticeably are uh, noticeable for their lack of any human presence this is also true of the victims Miyazaki presents numerous aerial depictions of bombings showing a night sky full of flames and houses on fire these images suggest the fire bombings of Tokyo that he witnessed as a child and also the bombing of Kobe depicted in his partner Takahata's celebrated film Grave of the Fireflies Unlike in Grave, however, the camera never turns earthward we are not privy to the life and death struggles of the bomb victims and can only presume that they occur the most personal aspect of war, therefore, becomes Howell's blistering anger embodied in his risky metamorphosis into a non-human creature. His non-human aspect is ironic. It is clear that he is the only participant in combat who actually cares about humanity, a compassion expressed in his lamentation to Calcifer, who the other warring, uh, that the other warring magicians have forgotten how to cry. Um, love uh, Napier's characterization of this movie as being very distant compared to something like Grave of the Fireflies, which I personally find to be a lot more effective as an yeah. anti-war film because we get to see the cl- the, the war close up. Now, Howells is not about this primarily, so he's f- still focusing kind of on the main aspects of the 
you know, the book. It's and in terms of like, I want to read the book to see what's different. Like I said, like this is just it's just very different from what I understand. So it's mm-hmm. like a lot of things are going to be different. But he keeps the framework of the book and then just does completely different things with it. I think. Um, yeah. So yeah, like, I definitely want to read the book. <laughs> I think he definitely adds in this anti-war part, which I think is not as prominent in the book. And uh, and and so like he's not getting up close and personal. But yeah, Howell. Um, and if you. Yeah, I think if you were a go in thinking of this as anti-war, you might be able to easier to see Howell's turning into a bird as a war type thing. Like he he's turning into that as he loses uh, himself fighting against this war. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess is is what is is going for here. Like Howell is being this this anti-war presence in the midst of these warring factions. Now, personally, um, the biggest part of the movie that doesn't make sense to me watching it is not the, uh, I mean, the ending, it's, it's, it's more annoying than, uh, like not nonsensical in terms of like, they just decide to end the war. But I like, to me, the movie never explains what Howell does when he goes through the black door. Yeah, it's um, really yeah. annoying. This is. I wish uh, we're a little clearer, but I think it's. Cl- that I think you know. I, after looking back, the intent is that he's going to sabotage both sides of the war. This is kind of like what is what the Miyazaki's going for here. He's just trying to fight against the war in general. He goes through the black door. He goes to fight in his bird form against both sides of the war. Um, personally, I find this never really spelled out in the movie. Yeah, we get, like, one yeah. really vague scene of him, like, supposedly in that dimension, whatever it is. But, yeah. like, it's yeah. not even two minutes long. Yeah, you <laughs> see him, like, interacting with the, the, the giant blimps and stuff. But, uh, it's, you know, we don't really know and, what like, he's the doing. the wizards or whatever. Yeah. Um, the wizard. Yeah, and you have the wizards who are fighting for... Um, I do think it's interesting that in this world, like, the wizards are completely co-opted into the war as, like, war fighters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, you, you see them, like, as kind of primary instruments of war. I think that's an interesting concept. But, um, yeah, I mean, there, there are references to Howell being, like, losing, like, just being exhausted emotionally, losing himself to his his bird form and all of this kind of in the context of him fighting against the war. And he, those, um, like, pen names he uses, they're for both sides right i just want to clarify yeah like because like, each side because what is it i guess they they like drafted like mm-hmm. yeah you would and stuff like that's that. what i thought i think <laughs> my understanding is this is the, the the we only ever see the one side of the war and he is drafted uh both times on one side of the war is my okay kind of, that was my interpretation at first but i, but I kind of like it better if it's different to, i mean it doesn't really matter but yeah i think <laughs> oh. i think as far as we know the ki- the suleiman's king is the one who conscripts him twice as two different personalities because they don't know okay. it's him yeah oh yeah. Uh, see sense, i thought narratively was, more boring yeah i was like i thought he was like drafted by both sides but it'd be cool it's possible that's up for interpretation i'm not sure that's yeah just the, after after researching it that was kind of my impression um based on reading stuff about it but yeah uh, i like that you said well were you saying that you think that a distance perspective for war is like does work better than one that like focuses on people suffering uh, for me, it does. It a movie like *Grave of the Fireflies* is much uh, is much more affecting than yeah. No, a movie I agree. Like this. I just I, I I think it's just because then you like can personally like you I, can relate to it. I guess a I'm little like bit annoyed more. Thinking about the fact that this came out in 2004, I mean, I was in fourth, fifth grade, so obviously I wasn't like politically aware of the war with Iraq. <laughs> but we, we grew up during 9/11, and now I'm pissed 
at my fifth grade self for not thinking about this, like that the distance perspective that we had during that war. And it just makes me mad. Yeah, maybe as a criticism of our distance perspective to wars and a commentary on that. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I mean, I think you think about this time period, 2004, um, Miyazaki adamantly against the Iraq war. But uh, we think back now we think we think bad we think back negatively on the war in Iraq it was definitely seen as a positive thing in 2004 totally. in the United yeah. States it's a pretty it's radical good. movie to have one of the biggest animated films of the time be Miyazaki's giant uh, anti, uh, anti-Iraq war commentary <laughs> like uh, think about it like that it's pretty uh, yeah that's, that's pretty cool that's awesome I love it yeah uh, you know, you wish on one hand, it's like I wish it was a little bit clearer, the messaging and stuff. I mean, I think it's like there enough. The uh, war mm-hmm. sucks kind of commentary, which is, you know, in, in our current state, you know, we're and maybe who just we personally are as people um, at this point. Like uh, we it's it's like, oh, yeah, war's bad. But like at this, you know, most of the U.S. watching this movie, it's like they're getting a clear anti-war theme when they're in like a pro-war mindset. So um, mm-hmm. it is a little, I think, radical. Although I think it should be noted the Iraq war, I think. Probably unpopular outside of the United States the entire time. Um, not, it's just the United States where it would be uh, yeah. seen like that. Um, and so on one hand, you, you kind of want it to be even a little bit more prominent to, narrow, to nail it down. On the other hand, it is it does contrast a lot or not maybe at least not fit in super well with a lot of these other themes that are happening, which are really interesting, which we're going to discuss next. So I do like that he left room for these other aspects of the movie, which I think are some of the best aspects of the movie. So maybe maybe he did find the right balance as it's there and prominent enough, but also like leaves room for a lot of other cool things. Mm-hmm. Possible. Um but he, at the very least, I would have liked what how it was doing a little clearer. But once yeah, you kind of think of it like that, yeah. I think it, the movie starts to make a little more sense. But like, what is what does that mean? He's just interfering with both sides. Like, what, what's his plan? Like, what he's, he's just going out there yeah. trying to just take down as many players. Well, and like he's so against the war. Like, Hal's against the war, obviously. But then he's like out there. But what is he doing exactly when he does go out there? Like. I don't know. It's he's confusing. just he's just trying to take down the the warplanes, I guess. I guess. Um, I, I think <laughs> chaotic good. Care about the casualties because be, sure, yeah. that's chaotic good, right? Yeah. Is I that... mean, I I think he, you know, he's trying to prevent further casualties and potentially these. You know, we there's probably a reason we don't see the ins and outs of the people fighting the war. We just see kind of these uh, bird like magicians. Instead, there's like as... that one scene where I mean, it's not really ins and outs, but like in the when they're going shopping or whatever, and then the bombs drop oh, in yes. the ocean. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that's one of the best out. scenes of the movie. Honestly, you're yeah, right. That is uh, that is uh, really uh, the the most close we get. We see the. I'm annoyed. That's one of my favorite scenes of the movie. <laughs> yeah, so it is there. There's there's some stuff there. You start to see a, a bombing a little bit up close, um, and then they probably retreat to the castle. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, How about the enemy propaganda. So, ca- ca- I mean, I guess yeah, everywhere is a castle. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Everywhere is a castle. Is that a philosophical statement? <laughs> you know what I mean. Every country has a castle. I don't know. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's probably true. Um, okay, the, the, we can if if it comes up, we can continue talking about the anti-war messaging. But there's also, I think, a lot else to talk about. Uh, Any this, I don't know if this is a major topic, but the castle itself, obviously, a big part of this movie. Um, oh yeah, vi- visually extremely striking um, with the use of CG uh, of the castle. I think uh, we talk about how Mononoke they get Ghibli gets CG for the first time. It's maybe a little rough, but well integrated. Uh, spared it away even better integrated still a little noticeable cg i think pretty pretty well at this point seamlessly integrated into howl's moving castle um, i would agree with that yeah 
I just wow. love that it's a castle. I don't know how I forgot the dub, but like when Sophie like first fired, rather when Turnip introduces her to the castle, she's like, "You call this a castle?" And I'm like, "Yeah, it should just be like Hal's moving. I don't know, weird mobile home. Like it, <laughs> even on the inside. Like when I watched this for the first time, I was expecting, sorry, expecting it to look like legitimately like a, like a Disney castle or a real life castle, and it's just a house inside. So I was like, "What's? Why is it a castle? I don't get it." <laughs> He lives in it. <laughs> so it's know. his castle. B- big it's enough building, I guess it's a castle. Yeah, um, but it's like, it looks but weird. But there seems like there's only one, maybe two rooms in there. <laughs> <laughs> he had to add a bathroom. Like, when they, they added a bathroom, yeah. They added yes. a guest bathroom later. Um, I think I find the scenes with the castle to be some of the most magical scenes. Uh, once we start getting into the part of the movie where she's exploring the different exits and the, you know, the colored wheel that leads to these different parts... Um, I, I think this is like so engrossing at this point. Um, just like seeing uh, it leads to all these places. The kid uh, puts on this this old man magic disguise, and they're, they're getting. Um, <laughs> you see, Howell has all these personalities and stuff. Um, like uh, it's it's uh, once you get to that part of the movie, I'm I'm super in because uh, we want that door. It's the Doraemon door, Dokodemo door, but like you only get four places. Only for yeah, I don't know. Could he add more? Um, he changed. He did. He added one. the pink one. Yeah. yeah, and we never got to see what the other one was, which also annoyed me as a kid. The black, the black one, or the uh, the, the blue one. I think there was. I don't know what he changed the pink one from, but there were definitely four, unless I'm remembering it incorrectly, and I need to watch it again in another five hours. Yeah, I always be watching it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's it's the, the the all the exits the the uh, the scene when he uh, when he moves the castle. I love that yeah. scene. I think that's pure magic um he, like, the sequence of animation is just yes. so good it's it's incredible and i do think this movie is st- stunning and stunningly animated like one of his absolute best miyazakis um benefits from the modern technology but also just gorgeous and of course all the these movies are significantly hand-drawn even if they incorporate computer graphics mm-hmm. um the the scene when she uh take spl- fi- finally uh splashes water on to calcifer to uh to kind of like destroy oh, yeah. the castle, I then then it like oh, yeah. uh, cut off the portals. I think that's great too. All all these castle scenes, um, I'm I'm really into in this movie, and I think it's like gorgeous. where the castle far- falls apart too. Is that yeah. The scene oh yeah, when she yeah. takes she takes him like out, and he's like, oh, like I should be the last one to leave, and then like oh, as yeah. soon as like sh- like he crosses the threshold, mm-hmm. like everything just crumbles in. And yeah. I I really enjoyed that scene. I don't know why it was really. It, was that all CG? I mean, I don't know. So we have to go back and look. Probably, I think probably nothing's all CG except for maybe the castle, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's incredibly striking visual and it walking, powered by Calcifer, who I have to say we haven't <laughs> talked enough about Calcifer to this point. I love Calcifer. I think yeah, he's he is the best, an iconic Miyazaki mm-hmm. character that I don't consider enough to be part of Miyazaki's amazing set of characters. You don't. I've never heard you bring up Calcifer before. I don't think I remembered my love of Calcifer until watching it again now. He's so great. I also will say he's better in English. (laughs) That's like one of the few. Is he? I'll probably make him sassier and stuff. Yeah, Uh, I mean, he is sassy in Japanese, but he's great in the English dub. He's Billy Crystal. Okay. (laughs) Hey, all you're taking for. That's such a good line. 
Josh Hutcherson Hutcherts is Markle. Yeah, I didn't remember that. I oh man, and freaking Christian Bale. <laughs> Christian Bale is Howell. Wow, I can't get over that. The casting they do for these movies when they dub this them is, is just insane to me. At this point, for the modern Miyazaki movies, yeah, this is gonna—they're going all out. <laughs> so Emily Mortimer is young Sophie. Um, Gene Simmons, old Sophie, should be noted in the original. Oh my god! In the original Japanese. Uh, uh, Chaco Baisho does both young both. and old Sophie. Yeah, she is insane. And she sings the end credits as well, yeah. She's, insane! Uh, Are you she's joking? She's really good, really good, yeah. I think this is one of potentially the best Ghibli performances. That That's crazy. Um, yeah, they have to, I mean, the fact that they have to separate that in most dubbed languages to two performances, I think, speaks a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I mean, let's let's uh, we can come back to uh, Calcifer, I guess. But how about uh, so- Sophie? I think is definitely one of the main topics I talk about next. And Sophie, just as a protagonist who is an older an old woman for a significant portion of this movie, um, I yeah. think is uh, I have to say I think looking back on this movie now, um, assessing it, the most unique and distinctive element to me, I think, of Howl's Moving Castle is the the uh, seamlessness of Sophie's arc as an old woman turning. She sometimes looks younger. She sometimes looks in between. It's so subtly done throughout the film. I mm-hmm. love that. That was yeah. like, like I was fully like it, it c- captured by that because some of the like transitions would just be so subtle. Like maybe she's a little bit taller or mm-hmm. she's like, got longer hair or like mm-hmm. just just enough though but it was or her eyes that was like one of the things that like i was always like where her eyes at like <laughs> what what do we got going on <laughs> in in you know i think we talk more about takahata in terms of these uh, weird anime like a uh, weird distinctive animation choices this is one of the most prominent miyazaki ones for me is just this uh complete integration of young and old Sophie throughout the film. It's striking enough that she is an old woman for most of the movie. Um, that's striking, uh, powerful. Uh, but, uh, her, her changing to kind of fit the, the themes and emotions of the scene. And as it continues kind of her journey to where she ends up at the end, where she is mostly young, but also retains qualities of when she was older. Um, I think it's, uh, probably i think i don't know if not my favorite aspect of the movie definitely like the most distinctive and probably the best part of the film i think yeah agree i love that she just like fully accepts it too she's like all right i'm an old woman now like she's like my clothes finally make sense and like my attitude does too and he has like a great from the book again about that whole thing which is just perfect yeah, let's let, let me read some Susan Napier passages on uh, this movie's view of old age. Um, so, in general, uh, she says the the through Sophie Howl's Moving Castle deals unflinchingly with the pains of old age, an issue of huge concern in Japan, where the rapid aging of its population is viewed with alarm. At the same time, the movie uses fantasy to process fears of aging and death in an ultimately optimistic fashion, while it acknowledges the darkness of human nature. The movie's upbeat ending offers a collectivity that is diverse, loving, and supportive. The movie is a kind of valentine to the director's older colleagues, especially his many many older female staff members, demonstrating that old age can be liberating rather than diminishing. Um, I think definitely uh, some overall maybe themes that he's going for in his presentations of old age, as he himself is, is definitely getting older um, at, yeah. at this time. 
and somehow still going at it uh, almost 20 years later currently. Yeah, my God. Um, Is he back off of his retirement? Yeah, he's <laughs> making a lot. He's making a final movie. He's doing oh, it. Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, man. The third final movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> I don't think he retired between Spirited Away and Howl's technically, but or he, I don't know. It's hard to keep track. But yeah, he's at least one or two retirements in at this point. Um, and this is not the end of it. So the, uh, yeah, just the, the view of uh, old age, we've talked a lot about how Miyazaki is not afraid to present old women or not, you know, old women in terms of like grandmothers and also just like middle-aged women, like, uh, it's very radical in terms of you think of Hollywood and how it's rare, you know, rare to see, uh, actresses getting parts past 30 or something like not, you know, rare, but it falls off a lot. Um, and Miyazaki consistently integrates, uh, non-young women into his films. And we have maybe the most striking example as his main character is partly not a young woman in, in this movie, however you want to think of it. Um, and uh, I think this is, uh, a, in some ways, a culmination of this, uh, this themes of um, his integration of older women throughout, uh, throughout his films. And uh, also just on its own, a commentary on uh, old age, finding uh, liberation in old age like this talks about. Yeah, I, I, think, I think it's all very strikingly done. I also like that it, if it was not at least like explicitly stated in the book, in the movie, it's implied that like the curse is like still kind of up to Sophia and that like her attitude determines what happens with herself. Like when she like wants to help Howell, I mean, I don't know if that's really a good thing. <laughs> she turns younger <laughs> when she like acts more youthful. She turns younger when she has like, I don't want to say less confidence, but when she's like less sure of what she wants to do or what's going on, she turns old and it's like a back and forth, but it's always up to her. And like, even the witch of the waste is like, I can't break the curse. Like I can only cast it. Who knows what's going to happen? Oh, vagueness. But like, I liked how it was portrayed. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, well, I'll read a quote later that incorporates uh, like questioning of the, the curse as one of these kind of aspects of the movie that is not explained, which I think is true that the movie never really explains how we break Sophie's curse if we do at all. But I will say I'm not bothered by this lack of narrative detail in terms of the curse. Yeah, me neither. Think, yeah, me neither. You, you get a thematic sense that she is, uh, it, it corresponds to her journey that she's going through and um, that she is either overcoming it or integrating it into herself, whatever mm-hmm. you want. To look at it kind of through her journey and i think that is really gorgeous like i it think this both. Is, yeah i think i think probably both in a lot of ways and yeah i, I think like this is not something that needs to be explained like yeah. and you you can yeah. see how you arrive at like maybe there are some things that should be explained but miyazaki often does this that he doesn't explain things and you don't think they need to be explained and so the line is i think sometimes thin but for me this this one is firmly on the the side of doesn't doesn't need to be explained and the curse i think yeah along with her the presentation of visually of, of her aging and de-aging throughout the movie is is one of the the strongest aspects mm. um I, I have another quote from susan napier's kind of an interesting commentary um on uh on age and the different aspects of the movie that leads into some some more general great commentary i think on on yes. this aspect so uh <laughs> she says kotani makes the radical radical suggestion that sophie's real curse was a more insidious and earlier one to be a young girl uh, it is, after all, young girls who are constrained by society and expected to behave in certain ways, such as being charming or flirtatious. When we first encounter Sophie, she seems to be rejecting that role, even insisting on wearing a dowdy hat in marked contrast to the gorgeous headwear available in her shop. But it is her metamorphosis into old age that allows her to reject the constraints of young femininity most definitively. 
Although Miyazaki has consistently shown young girls breaking this constrained paradigm in terms of both action and attitude, his previous shoujo characters were feminine and cute. In contrast, the elderly Sophie, with her protruding nose, wrinkled visage, and sagging stumpy body, is decidedly not cute in the conventional meaning of the term. The director even includes a scene of her snoring by the fireside, an inconceivable image in any of his other young heroines. Even at the film's end, she retains the traits of self-reliance, compassion, and forthrightness that her metamorphosis had nurtured, symbolized by her retention of silver hair while the rest of her body regains its youth. Um, so I think that analysis at the end is kind of the the, the broad takeaway by the end of the movie is she has um, retained what she has learned in her journey and is kind of symbolized by her 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 hair color change. That's a move we've seen a lot recently, I think. In, yeah. In animated yeah. Movie, yeah. Was this like was um, that inspired by the? <laughs> Tangled, that's the one I thought I mean, of. I hate it. Was I mean, I think if you're this? looking for animation influences, this hair color change is probably a big one on current animation. Yeah, totally. Probably looking back to Howl's for that. Although you know, this isn't old enough that it would. I'm sure there's been some other hair color change. I mean, it is it, now 16 years old. That's an old movie now. Yeah. That's an old movie now. Yes. Okay. It's 16. It's yeah. it's legal to drive. Howls can drive. Some states. And yeah. in some states, it can get married. So Yeah, that too. Mar- Markle is an adult now. I like that. Oh, it's... I loved Markle. <laughs> he's great. He's, he's... <laughs> I didn't want to bring this up, but now I have to. That girl who comes into the shop when he's like disguised as the old man, I shipped them when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> she had like two lines, but I was Allie, like, oh, I was God. shipping it now watching. <laughs> <laughs> not surprising i was like uh, so like, sad that he has to look like an old man you know um, maybe she'll get like a old lady costume and they can go on <laughs> <laughs> she'll be a witch in training i like that um they uh napier talks about like for the beginning of this quote that's like the curse was more her being a young girl at the time and it's like my biggest problem with the movie maybe the book if it's the same is like these women are like from the beginning they're like oh my god it's how oh my god i love him oh but don't go near him because he's going to take your heart but oh my god i love him and it's back and forth and i hate it it annoyed me so much watching it for the first time and it still annoys me now and it's just that that's like such tea to say that like young girls are constrained by societal norms and they have to behave a certain way they have to like want to get a certain guy but also like keep themselves distanced enough like it's just the worst but the way she put it is fantastic yeah, I was going to say, she really, like, captured that, like, sense. Because I, I felt that as well, that, like, you know, like, Sophie wanted to, like, she wanted to be a hat maker. And her sister's like, oh, well, do what you want. And she's like, this is what I want to do. Like, leave me alone. So Was it implied that, like, her dad died in the war? Because she was like, I'm sticking here because dad, it, like, the, ha- the hat shop meant so much to dad. So it's like, oh, he's dead. And then I when she freaked see- out like at that bombing scene i was like is she getting like not to be that person but war flashbacks like ptsd kind of yeah, better situation. thank you i apologize i mean possibly like i kind of i kind of got that sense that like her father wasn't like around anymore and i was also really shocked because i never picked up that the one lady was her mom and i was yeah, like sister. i thought that was her sister she looks just yeah. like her sister until she was just like, oh, Sophie. She's like, mom. And I'm like, what? Um, <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Whomst? Oh, Whom? yeah, yeah. Wait, so that was that? That's her sister. Okay, so I was very confused by the mom. family stuff. So. so her sister is the one who's like, you have to do what's best for you. In the beginning. In the beginning. And her mom. And then her is mom the- is at the end. Well, yeah. 
Yeah, and her even mom though to me they look like the same character. They are the, like they look exactly the same. It's are they, really I thought, are, or is it not? Are we sure it's not the sister pretending to be the mom? Or something? No, because the mom. You see the mom in the beginning because she comes back and she's got that really crazy hat on. Mm, I thought that was her sister too. No, no, that was her mom. Oh man. Yeah, we don't spend to, like, a lot of time on her side. family. Like it yeah. doesn't really. It's it, it's not important, I guess. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I was a little confused by that. Um, yeah, and I think in some ways, to close out the old age stuff, I think in some ways it's it's radical commentary to say, like, the real curse was youth, but I think it is totally fitting with this uh, theme of that I do think is, like, very prominent in the movie of, like, it's liberate, her, her feeling limber, liberated by being older. Um, so I think in, in that way it kind of fits that. Okay, I'm looking at them side by has, side. I see the difference is basically the nose. The mom has a bigger nose. But they look similar? <laughs> they look exactly the same. It's blonde hair, blue eyes, same pink okay. eyeshadow. That's why I was Oh, confused. no, I'm sorry. The sister has blue eyeshadow. That's the difference. The sister is uh, Letty, I think. I don't know who yeah. the old yeah. mom's name is. Yeah. The mom yeah. is Mrs. something or Mrs. other. something. Okay. Uh, Hatter. There you go. Oh, my God. Really? <laughs> Hate it so Are they much. really Hatter? Oh my god! Wow. Oh, it is. Wow. Sophie Hatter. <laughs> okay. Okay. Ali brought this up. Let's talk about Howell as Miyazaki's number one heartthrob character. Did I bring that up? Was that me who brought that up? You said uh, you don't like in the beginning how like the girls all you know. So I think that. So I mean, I think at its most generous, like we could, the commentary would be this movie as the and you know we don't. I have not read, you know, not read the book. We're not analyzing the book, so we can think of that separately. But the movie, um, you know, it starts within this framework that a lot of these uh, kind of uh, fantasy movies aimed at like teenage girls do, and that there's like this heartthrob type character. And so maybe maybe it like works in the framework of that and subverts it. Like maybe maybe you could think of it like maybe. that. Still maybe. Um, we can talk about that. But Howell himself, you know, interesting interesting character. Uh, you know, we don't really see this this type of person in Miyazaki movies. This uh, Edward from Twilight type character. Oh know. my god! See, I was waiting for somebody to talk about that because he spies on her while she sleeps. Did it's he really? Yes. <laughs> Somehow it's less creepy. That, that's like, the iconic he, Edward. He peeked move. open the curtain and she was just laying there all normal. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And he and he was she was normal. So you, that's how you know that he knows that she's under a curse, which you're not a hundred percent clear about. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I realized that she's switching back and forth, too. And yeah, same. And he starts to integrate it a little more, which is, uh, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, okay. I don't want to. Now I'm going to think of him like Edward's going to be. Do, please. Because <laughs> is you not really. Do you know, like, how old he is? That's the thing. Like he that? could be. Yeah. We, oh, and I, I should say that. Last, last aspect of the, and this will come up later, but the old age thing is that uh, the, the Witch of the Waste, instead of, like, treating her like a villain once she's, like, revealed to be her true age is shown and she's forced to be her true age, she is um, treated with compassion yeah. and brought in yeah. um, like you ideally would treat the elderly. Um, so I think that that's, <laughs> that's part of it. That has to be addressed, though. That's sad. I think every, any other movie would kill her off, I think. Yeah, probably. Yeah. The, the I mean, Miyazaki all, I, does this sometimes. I think it's very radical that he would take... She was still take... shady as heck throughout, like, even when she doesn't have magic, so I didn't yeah, like well, her. Then, then you, yeah, well, then it's like she's just... Uh, her, her true nature is, like, on the surface, and so she sees Howl's heart, and she's like, I still want to have Howl's heart. It's not in, like, a conniving yeah, way, no. but it's just yeah. like that's her she's desire still, still. She just is an old creep now. Yeah, so uh, the reason I thought of that is because, uh, you know, like much like her, it's possible Howell was also being kept yeah. alive for a long time. Yeah. Is, yeah. Um, a- April, what's your view on Howell after watching? Um, he was 
an interesting character. <laughs> I feel like he was all over the place, <laughs> which I was not like, I don't know. <laughs> it's so hard. It's conflicting because you think it's about Ghibli very... guys and you're like, who's the best? None of them are great. <laughs> not yeah. To but I don't know. Like, you don't get a whole lot from him either, I feel like. Just that, like, he doesn't like war. And I'm like, okay, cool. And then... <laughs> bare minimum. <laughs> yeah, like, bare minimum. And, like, it was... Like, the first thing they do is they're just like, oh, like, he's here. I wonder if he's in town. And they're like, oh, well, I heard he ate some girl's heart. And they're like, oh, well, I'm safe for whatever. <laughs> yeah, because like, I'm ugly. Like, really? You're yeah. Gonna- <laughs> I hated that. Yeah, because, well, so whatever, like, I heard, like, I, like, like, heard that, I was like, oh, so this is, like, going to be about, like, hit, like, it's gonna be, like, a Beauty and the Beast kind of thing, like, he's gotta find his true, like, like, true beauty and accept others or something like that, and then, it like, that was not the, the, the plot of the film at all. Stockholm syndrome a thing that happens here because like she does kind of she is forced to work yes. for them because she's nowhere else to go <laughs> and then she falls in love with her her like master or whatever well and I also love too because he's just like who let her on the <laughs> in yeah. the castle and she's like I let myself on like which is like, also confusing to me because like when you're thinking about his relationship with Calcifer how he's like essentially his heart I mean I guess yeah. it's but super ending but like D- wouldn't he be aware of everything that's going on in his house because he and Calcifer are connected? I don't get it. Yeah, because they're connected like that. Uh, and I guess he's his heart, supposedly, but I don't understand, I guess, that connection. And, yeah. and, and maybe like whenever he ate Calcifer, and I was like, <laughs> oh, look, he's eating his own heart. Like, <laughs> does yeah, that mean he's free? <laughs> I don't what? know. <laughs> yeah, it's. it's... I think Cal is a character that suffers a little bit because of the plot stuff in the movie. Like we've talked about, you don't really know what he's doing. But I think, you know, he's he's uh, he's definitely this type of um, heartthrob like type of character. He's probably a lot of like people who watched when they were younger and like love this movie is kind of favorite. Um, I think you'd probably get an emotional connection to the the howl type of guy um, i did i did relate to it whenever he was turning into green goo yes i was, <laughs> I was like i love the line from marco like i saw him do this once when a girl dumped him he's like summoning <laughs> yeah, yeah yes. that was pretty fun <laughs> yeah and i think i think how is a character that is intended to come into focus kind of at the end when you get the big reveal in a super iconic scene when sophie witnesses um young howl capturing the shooting star um <laughs> and uh, you see the calcifer uh, is you know has his heart and so he is a character who was heartless throughout this movie he is um un- emotionally underdeveloped he is uh you know i think it it is uh it relates to the appeal of a character like this probably for a lot of uh women or grow like people maybe when they're younger watching it's like oh it's um you know you reunite him with his heart and he's uh he, he, he was mysterious, now. and now he can love, and he's uh, mm-hmm. you know, nurturing, like, and ugh. yeah. Um, that really reminds me of Twilight. Now that you're phrasing it that way, like it's so <laughs> yeah. And like as this, you know, this framework comes from a book, and it's you know that type of uh, generally the book, and uh, yeah, I'm sure the book handles it in a subversive way too. But I think Miyazaki does his own twist on on stuff with with the character Howell. But I do think the character comes into focus a lot more when you realize he was he's lacking a heart, underdeveloped. I think throughout the film and uh, sophie helps him get his heart back and that's part of their, their love story i don't that. pick that that's
that's like all that's the thing when i think about like miyazaki heroines it's like they subvert that all the time so i'm like why is he doing this and why is he making it a specifically like non-shoujo type character like why why are you saying once we grow up that's what we're supposed to do um yeah it, it is true i mean that miyazaki does not do this type of story and it is striking that sophie and howell kiss twice yeah, in twi- this movie, yeah. which has like never happened before in a Miyazaki. That's also because they're point. older. It's less PG because they're older. Yeah, I and I think I've, we've read several quotes. I think throughout uh, talking about romance in Miyazaki movies, he's just not interested in romantic angles of things. Yeah, um, he's, yeah. he's so. But then you have this movie, so it's like what? And but it's, I think it, I think this movie also like it showcases that like romance isn't his thing. Yeah, that oh, that's true. It's a good point. Because he's like, y'all, like, want romance? I gave it to you. You hate it? Cool. Uh, like, I won't do it again. He portrays it in a negative way, maybe. You know, I think he's it's a fairy tale type thing that he's playing into. He's For some reason, as he's gotten older, he's more open to this. There's uh, a, you know, a kiss in one of his later movies, I guess, spo- you know, getting into that vague spoiler territory, but uh, For the Wind Rises actually also features that. And oh, he has I thought to... you were talking about Ponyo. No, no, I don't remember if there's a kiss in Ponyo. I assume Fairly. not. Um, the, the, yeah, the kiss at the end of Wind Rises. So, like, he, he moves in this direction. You want, and there's, like, a ton of documentaries about the making of Wind Rises. So you see him, like, uh, kind of talk about, like, struggling with, like, oh, I guess I should make them kiss. Like, I should, I don't normally do this, but I guess this is, like, uh, the thing that I is more appealing now. And, like, that's I should try to. That's his best kiss scene, though. So that's good. He improved. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's his, uh, his pinnacle for this type of thing. But Sophie and Hall of some, uh, the yeah, iconic, I mean, when she's a, uh, when he's a bird. And then she's uh, yeah, that's a good one. Him. I think the hug between them was the cutest thing. Yeah, and just at the end during kind of that epilogue scene, I think is is really good. So yeah, I, I, you know, so neither of you are big sh- Sophie and Howell shippers. Sounds mm, like I'm just not a big Howell person. <laughs> like yeah. I think I was when I was younger, and I do like the twist that like she saw them in the past, and then he finds her in the future. Like oh, there you are. I was looking for you. Like you think it's an act, but it's actually real. And it's like oh my god. Shyamalan twist but I don't know he just as like a character like you said he's not fleshed out enough in the movie to make me like really feel something for him yeah which I think is purposeful to a certain extent yeah it's fine but you know maybe that lessens the emotional attachment at the end then yeah Yeah. also because he's just a drama queen yeah he gets real upset about his hair and I think it's hilarious that's the best part of Howl honestly it is but it's also the one that makes me want to date him the least so yeah I was like it's a great moment but it makes me less attracted to him because (laughs) he can't be freaking out about his hair because we're gonna freak out about my hair yeah like yeah who's the Howl and who's the Sophie in the relationship oh Jesus Christ that's gonna be the new thing yeah Whatever, I'll take a page out of Sophie's book and just dye it gray. Listen, gray hair looks great. I think this is Miyazaki's preeminent ship. I think this is the ship for Sophie. It is. You know, unless you want to count Whisper the Heart as Miyazaki's ship, too, then I think that's okay, but that's a good one. That's actually good, yeah. Uh, But uh, no, I think, I mean, I think this is. uh, 
bad, you know, but... it's it's it plays this like certainly the 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 role of Howell as kind of like a womanizer and um the the uh fan the the fangirling of like the pretty guy and who actually harms them and like her like nurturing him back and how like of course those all all of those dynamics do not currently appeal to the type of people that we are so okay. like of course yeah. okay understood but in 2004 sure i was into it i was yeah, really into it so but... certainly uh, like people as kids were gonna be into this and then also i just like given given like if you could accept all that which you don't have to but if you can accept all of that as <laughs> as yeah it is it is i think really well presented at the end of the movie yeah yes. uh, so, yeah i just yeah. i'm not attracted to him so. <laughs> exactly. it's, it's hard for me he's de- to, I, mean, I mean he's definitely miyazaki's like hottest guy come on um, ashitaka is right there ashitaka okay that's yeah. a good point it's a good he's point. my fave and also pazu don't you love him yeah, they're getting a lot of his kids are younger. <laughs> but I, don't, I wouldn't say Pazu. Uh, for some reason, Pazu now is reminding me of uh, Josh Hutcherson. And, uh, oh! <laughs> should, he should, I don't think he did. He should have. He looks like but... him, kind of. With the... Yeah, right? That's what yeah. I'm thinking. Mar- yeah, quickly, Markle. Yeah, Markle's great. I love Markle. Yeah, he's great. Markle. I do think Calcifer is probably my favorite character. I want to talk about him more, even though there's not a lot to talk about. He just has a lot of great one-liners. He's, uh, I love when he becomes, like, a raging demon that is, like, threatening, but he's still kind of sweet. Um, <laughs> but I love, and, I love that Sophie, she's just like, I'll pour water on you. Like, Yeah, and he, she threatens, and then it, she follows through eventually. Kill somebody. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, like that's, I'm not putting up with this. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great that's a great, uh, in a movie that has narrative flaws, that's a really well-seated moment after she threatens that, and then she, not for the purpose of getting back at him, but for the purpose of oh, uh, yeah. saving everyone has to pour water on him. The twist, um, the Shyamalan yeah. twist. I thought the the timelines were the Shyamalan twist. I mean, the whole movie is kind of a Shyamalan <laughs> twist in that it doesn't really make any sense, and it's uh, just happening. Um, but it's like a fever dream he had. It's just a fever yeah. dream at the end, really, yeah. <laughs> oh, there, I mean, that not, and to say that the ending doesn't make sense, I think I said it before, but there are iconic scenes at the ending, you know? It's, it's like, I do yeah. think the Catching the Star is a scene highly remembered. Um, there's, you know, the, the castle falling apart and stuff. Like, there's, everything's great on its own, you know, just um, maybe putting it together narratively, but like, we're trying to view it poetically as discussed. But yeah, Calcifer. Um, I'm just like, I, because talking about Calcifer and staying on the plot of the end, like the castle is flying, but Howell doesn't have Calcifer like yeah. as his magic heart. So how is he using yeah, magic? Calcifer, Calcifer opts in to power no, the house oh, yeah, at the yeah, end. Right, yeah, he mind. chooses to stay because that's his family now, which is the right. next thing I'll talk about. But Oh, yeah. Um, oh. Yeah, so. The, characters. I mean, yeah, we can get to that in a second. But yeah, the I mean, Calcifer, I think, is comparing it to Kiki again. He's the GG of the, yes. the movie. <laughs> At first, I thought in English they were voiced by the same person just because they're like grudgy, begrudging Some old similar, similar characters, yeah. They're um, both but... very funny. And I think, well, no, in Japanese, he does have a lot of good one-liners still. I remember in Kiki, they gave him a lot of more room to ad-lib in the dub. In, in, in Kiki, they, they changed it a lot with the dub. Yeah, I don't know about yeah. this movie if they also changed it uh, yeah. for a lot. Um, but yeah, I, he just, just, he's very sweet, yet uh, a little bit sarcastic, yet... Um, she again. likes my spark! <laughs> <laughs> he's adorable. Yeah. I want a uh, Calcifer plushie now. I don't think that I have not. I've never they seen totally, a Calcifer. Plushie. Yeah, I've never have either. I've seen I've Gigi seen and I've seen either. all the other little cute dudes, but I haven't seen Calcifer before. Like a plushie of a fire, I guess. But yeah, fire. <laughs> it's probably a statue or something. 
Or just an actual fire. Just put googly eyes on the wood. There you go. In the in the Ghibli Museum, you get a ticket for the short film they show, and the ticket is one of Miyazaki's movies. Um, and uh, one of the ones I got was Howl and the Fire. Oh, nice. the fires. That's it. So I guess I have a little cost for a thing. So oh, you got to keep, keep it. Nice. Yeah, you get to keep the tickets. Yeah, it's really good. Um, so yeah, that one of Howl's is one of them. Um, I don't know. Is there anything else to say about Markle? Um, He's just so cute. I, know. I love that he was like. I don't know. He's just very precious. He's not like a, I mean, he's not a teenager, but he's not like a brat either, obviously, because he's working for Howl, I guess. But he's just so adorable. I love that well, he loves Sophie. And he's kind of like, I guess he's like the the like opposite of Sophie, because he's, even though he's so young, like he obviously has like a sense of responsibility and mm-hmm. like respect and everything like that. So just because like he, I guess he manages like spells and stuff and like goes about and does business and yeah. manages the money. <laughs> yeah, so. seriously. Wow. He is like very mature for his age. So he, He's like, yeah, he's like super mature for his age and he he's just comfortable with that. And it's kind of like uh, that's who like Sophie could have been mm. is because, you know, she's very much like an old woman in, in a young woman's body. But <laughs> then yeah. she's in an old woman body. <laughs> Yeah, he's the he's he's the old man in a young man's body. Okay. Yes. Yeah, and then he like he comes Benjamin across Button's very friend. responsible. Yeah, is he a Benjamin Button situation? Maybe. <laughs> yes. But um, then he also has like those moments where he like he's very much a kid. Like he's yeah, like yeah. Oh, eventually Sophie, he opens up to Sophie. Yeah, and, he's uh, like yeah. you're my mom now. It's so yeah, cute. It's good. Okay, that'll lead us into the quote. Okay, so let's talk about this as like a found family at the end, as I know Allie loves found families, and I yes. think this is one of the Who most. This is one of the most iconic found families ever, I think, at the end of this movie. And oh, Howl's. totally. Um, okay, I have a very long quote from Susan Napier. I wanted, there's many aspects I think are really interesting of this. So let's, let's, re- let's read it all, or we could potentially stop and talk about things as it goes. But overall, talking about the found family presented at the end of Howl's um, by Susan Napier, she says, As previously noted, many critics dismiss Howl's explicitly happy ending, regarding it as artificial and sentimental. Critics point out that there's no real explanation for the war's end beyond the king's advisor, Madame Solomon, declaring, let's put an end to this silly war. In fact, at the time of the movie's release, the Asahi Simbun newspaper published an an article detailing three riddles of Howl. How does Sophie's curse get removed? Why was the castle reconstructed? And how did the war get settled? Uh, the director does not provide clear answers to any of these questions, leaving some viewers dissatisfied with the film's lack of resolution. What Miyazaki does offer at the end of the movie's end is a vision of resistance to the enemy of modern society in the form of the family that Sophie and Howell create around them. This new family incorporates the very old, the Witch of the Waste, the very young, Howell's boy, Prentice Markle, and even a pet, the dog Keen, not to mention a magical creature, Calcifer, returning to the family because he misses its other members. Okay, I appreciate that, that it's a resistance to the anami. I don't know how to pronounce that, of modern society. That's a good take. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Go Um, ahead. Okay, yeah. And it's, 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 uh, yeah, the move of Calcifer, I think, returning at the end is really sweet. That's Um, really while, while, okay, while family issues are important and contentious around the world, it is reasonable to suggest that, the Japanese, that Japanese society has particular difficulties in this regard. As Sugita points out, the Japanese family underwent major shifts in the last two decades of the 20th century. While the divorce rate in Japan remained far lower than the other industrialized countries, relations between the generations grew increasingly negative, leading to such phenomena as the hikikomori, young people, usually, not always, but, usually but not always male, who stayed at home with their parents but refused to interact with, the, with them or with 
with the outside world. During this period, youth violence also rose, and the media detailed truly shocking stories of bullying and abuse by young people whose families apparently had no idea or concern about what they were doing. It is the state of toxicity within the family that the director is clearly attempting to combat in Howell. While Howell is hardly a, while Howell is hardly a textbook hikikomori, his narcissism, <laughs> his lack of responsibility and isolation at the beginning of the film suggest a socially unevolved young man. Yes, the other characters yeah. also initially seem to have little interest in family relationships, though Sophie rather perfunctorily visits his, her, his sister Letty at the beginning of the film. Um, Miyazaki emphasizes the power of family ties with the scene inserted late in the film in which Howell's young apprentice Markle asks Sophie whether they are a family. Her reply is strongly affirmative and we see Markle clutching tightly uh, to her skirts in a gesture that suggests both desperation and relief. Sophie's taking in of the the now virtually senile which, which of the Waste is also an element added by the director. Her kindness to her former enemy not only emphasized Sophie's uh, developing maturity and compassion, but also suggests, uh, but suggests a model of acceptance and love towards infirm and elderly people. Whether Sophie is actually capable of magic herself, her ability to see the best in people from Howell to Calcifer to the witch suggests a form of special talent. Yeah, that's some good tea. So then referring to the empathy, I think, and compassion, she learns at the end. My main, uh, so a great commentary, I think, on Miyazaki. This is totally a Miyazaki move trying to comment on family in Japan and family relationships mm-hmm. and general relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want to talk about uh, Howl as a hikikomori. Yeah, which seriously. Is, uh, yeah. I love this take. I love it. <laughs> That's the best take I've ever seen about him because when I was younger, everyone was like really into him. And I was like, I don't see the appeal. And now this makes so much sense. He's a hikikomori. It's. it's <laughs> I, I wonder to what extent this is intentional. Maybe not specifically, Every, but presenting but him as that thing. type in of person. In the book, he's also. I know he's obnoxious in the book because my friend has pointed that out to me many a time. Like he's st- just a stupid boy. <laughs> no offense to boys. Like he's just he's so, he is obnoxious, and it makes sense. Howell specifically stays like in his room and does not want to go to the. Uh, the, the the meeting with Suleiman and uh, eventually like trails her, but uh, you know well, then he's... He, he he also gets mad because he doesn't want people to go in his room and touching <laughs> that's, his that's stuff. a that's a classic Ikikomori move, yeah. <laughs> You can't go it in my room. Oh, oh man, it, I lo- yeah. Howell, I think, is a lot more sympathetic if you think of him as a Hikikomori. <laughs> is he though? I think so. He's not a like womanizing like uh, guy. Yeah, like, that's he's true. A, that's a good he's point. He's just some nerd who has tr- social problems. You there know? is like so much terrible stigma against Hikikomori. You know that <laughs> everybody yeah. knows it. Um, but uh, he, you know, I think you know, and I think the main aspect of this is his uh, undeveloped. Uh, Mm-hmm. undeveloped socially which i do think is a legitimate part of the movie and i think that totally plays into that characterization so i, I really think yeah. that's uh that's he interesting talks about how like his uncle would visit him or no if that was his uncle st- actually i can't remember i thought i assumed he was like always alone except for when his uncle came to teach him magic so it's like implied that he never really got um like he was never socialized properly yeah mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think so. I think that's what the movie's trying to talk about. And and um so we're commenting kind of on those types of people with Howell and how Sophie interacts with them and she she has this grand found family that uh at the end uh is 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 together with all these many different types of people. Um which I I do think it's a really beautiful ending. Mm-hmm. With with mom and dad yeah. who kiss on the castle, yeah. Howell and Sophie. That's the thing. Even if you don't really like Howell and Sophie or their dynamic or whatever, it's like it's still a nice thing that everybody comes together, and it's a, like a lot of different people who were kind of at odds in the beginning. Yeah. Well, and it's yeah. it's also one of those things where like 
maybe if your family is broken, you can find you can still find that companionship mm-hmm. like elsewhere mm-hmm. and yeah. not always in like the people that you expect. Like I thought it was very like endearing how they were calling um the witch of the waste uh grandma at the end. Yeah. I was like and everyone was calling her grandma too and she was like I'm grandma like <laughs> <laughs> grandma yeah. Okay. I want to. Yeah. I love all that. I want to talk about the Witch of the Waste and Suleiman because we haven't talked about that part of the movie as much. So the the scene and the dog, I guess. He. Oh, so the scene when um this is the part of the movie when I was like, wow, I remember this. I didn't even remember is from the movie, but I'm having like these emotional kind of uh, resonance. So when when they we go to the large steps and they have to walk up the steps and. Um, <laughs> The Witch of the Waste cannot, like, do it, and she's trapped, and then she's, like, put in the chair, and she's, like, stripped of her powers. And then also the part when, um, you know, Sophie, conf- or I guess I guess Suleiman confronts uh, Sophie and uh, Howell, and they have this, like, changing landscape, and they're, like, high up in the sky, and there's, like, shooting stars all around them. I just think it's so magical, that that part. Yeah. Um, I the, the stairs thing, like, it's so iconic in my mind and has a strong emotional resonance. This is like, uh, I'm like, is this like big fat shaming of, uh, yeah, of I like, was Witch wondering. of the Waste? Um, I still think, I mean, it's I thought kind of it, a funny scene. I don't think that's a good thing to say, but I was laughing at like some I of the lines. Was, I thought it was more of like a take of like how like, pe- like older like generation would like are lazier and so, like, and even, like, the the Witch of the Waste is just, like, well, how, like, how are you, like, able to get all, get up all of the stairs? And it's, like, well, Sophie's not really an old woman. Like, she's just, <laughs> she's just cursed by you. So, or she has a spell put on her by you, but she's still, like, young, like, technically. So, she is that much more capable kind of thing. But even though, like, you know, she got, you know, up the stairs first and everything like that. She still, like, waited behind almost and was like, okay, like, yeah, are you coming? Yeah. Like, I liked how she was cheering her on. It made me yeah, laugh. She was, like, cheering her on, but negatively, like, oh, you call yourself a witch? You can't even get up the stairs. Like, yeah, I think, I think probably in classic Miyazaki fashion, it's a commentary on how the Witch of the Waste does magic and doesn't work for herself. And so now she has to actually do like some work for yeah. herself and yeah. not just magic it and she can't do it. And she's to, uh, you know, to me, definitely, I think comes across into a little bit as badly in terms of uh, her being like too fat to get up the stairs. I don't yeah, know. I, totally. I think you, yeah. you have to probably not think of it in that capacity for it to work. But, you have to um, think of it as that she's a capitalist who has people do things for her. And then when she has something yeah, done so, yeah. herself that she can't do it because she's, she's the, the shadow henchmen who are too much yeah. money yeah, yeah. Too a, much a commentary money. on rich people or something like that you know like uh yeah it's 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 so it's it's quite it's still like a iconic aspect or part of the movie regardless <laughs> i guess but yeah it's com- complicated feelings about that and then yeah just them confronting suleiman i want to say quickly about suleiman um i think something that distinguishes i was thinking about this something that distinguishes howells from uh, some of Miyazaki's potentially quote-unquote better movies. Suleiman is a character that is a Lady Eboshi in Mononoke or mm-hmm. any of these, uh, or a Dola in Castle in the Sky, and yet she is like just not, not really a person in this movie. She's not really a character. Like This is yeah. the character that should be that type of character, but there's no, no effort put into her characterization in this movie. I'm glad you brought that up because I yes. don't like that that happens, but I know she's not like, is she supposed to be relevant? 
Yeah. I mean, what is Sabayon? Relative magician. to Wally. I mean, Zaki's making his own uh, story here. So uh, I think right. uh, it, it, she's in more of a villainous role as the king's magician. She also serves as like a king surrogate and a surrogate for the person starting the war. But I think in his other movies that are more potentially more complex in some aspects this character is is seen in a nuanced light whereas here she's pretty straight villainous although i think you sympathize her when you learn that she's like howl's mentor and stuff and um, Mm -hmm. maybe seems like a cog in the machine in her own right um but uh yeah i mean there's there's just a lot going on here and a lot of other characters uh on sophie's in sophie's like found family and stuff and we don't spend time on on suleiman maybe instead witch of the waste maybe you could see her as that type of character this time um yeah i also don't yeah. think there's really that level of complexity with her but i think it is is really it supposed to be she... sophie though because <laughs> she could yeah. be both yeah, i mean sophie is kind of both the the shoujo protagonist and the iconic older character uh in the movie so i, I think that kind of fits this yeah and so maybe there's extra weight extra work that has to be done with sophie's characterization so there's less time to spend on other characters too maybe you can see it that way um but yeah just which of the way yeah we talked about it, yeah which of the ways staying on board and being this uh being, being this character with any similar to no face being part of their team oh, after being the villain and spirited yeah. away i think that's yeah. kind of a move for miyazaki and i do think it's really interesting when i like that, that move when that happens but i didn't like her <laughs> period yeah i think it's uh, done well though yeah it's it's like once she's stripped of a uh, similar to no face how about this when mm-hmm. she's stripped of the things that make her toxic uh, yeah. the magic that is uh supporting her toxicity once no face is in the wrong environment once you take them away from that they become uh they become more uh, sympathetic, kind of harmless uh, people. Yes. Yeah, I think which which of the ways more of doing it of her own accord, I guess, from our perspective. And hey, I literally mm-hmm. wanted to bring up Catra. She got out of a toxic environment. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah, which of the ways? Yeah, we don't really know her much of her backstory beyond that to know how she got to this position. But also, um, I want to go back to Solomon for like two seconds because we were talking about we don't know how, why the war ended. I remember when she was talking to Sophie about Howell, she was like, I'm sad that he left me. I thought he was going to be my heir. So I was like, is she ending the war so like she can like course him into being the new king or something? Now that I'm thinking about it, that's also just not so good. We needed more of her, but there was no time yeah, there's that notion when Howell was yeah her 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 prodigy and it i don't i didn't get the impression from the end she expected Howell to come back to her um, yeah that's it's true. possible but it um, also seemed like she was more accepting of that fact at the end i of think the yeah movie i think versus so. like in the beginning because it seems like everyone's like just trying to get their hands on Howell, and mm-hmm. but then like at the end everyone's like eh, just let him do whatever he wants <laughs> he's gonna do it anyway yeah so. Yeah, I do think they're more accepting of, of that at the end. Uh, the tur- turnip head, uh, I think he's turnip head in the dub, turnip in the to the sub. Um, yes, it's both. I think. Yeah, he's uh, he's he's. I like I like turnip. My favorite scene with turnip. This is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Quite like turnip helps them do the laundry um, outside. <laughs> I love that scene. It's really. <laughs> it's just really like, good. Yeah. Really enjoys doing the laundry. Like. <laughs> yeah. For some <laughs> reason, I just I really love that scene. I like when he brings Sophie the umbrella. Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, I just but, don't know. like that he was in love with her and that she had to kiss him to break the spell. I'm sorry. He's very, he's very accepting right after, though. Oh, she doesn't love me? Okay, I'll go yeah, end the war then. Great. But he yeah. makes a face. If, if Sophie did love him, he would he have not ended the war? He's he was... Yeah. <laughs> he's like, really I'll kill everyone for you, Sophie. my love. Yeah, he's really, he is really respectful. It's it's weird. It's like, oh, I, Sophie goes kisses everyone at the end. Turnip turns into another person in love with her. Okay, sure. He makes a face when she and Howell are making out, though. I mean, you know. 
He's well, allowed yeah, to make a face. Yeah. He's allowed to have feelings. <laughs> I know. He can have a They're face, back yeah. on another man. <laughs> right in front of him, damn. <laughs> That's like, I just professed my love to you and yes, told you I was going to end the war and you're oh, going to yeah. kiss Yeah, maybe they're man. being a little... Uh, <laughs> yeah, get a room. Yeah. Is she moving into Howell's room in the castle? Is that what's happening? I don't um, think he's her in. <laughs> <laughs> he's still, he's like, still a kikopote even when they're together. He's like, no, you're not going into my room. Yeah, no. I like it. Okay. You're still the cleaning lady first. No, that's terrible. Oh, no. Oh, no. That's um, terrible. But like, it, it, speaking of the cleaning, I mean, we talked a lot in Spirited Away how uh, Miyazaki's and throughout this podcast, Miyazaki's themes of finding uh, finding self-identity and things that are important about yourself through hard work. I think, again, with her becoming uh, the cleaning lady doing hard work throughout the castle, she's like finding her place, finding things about her. Um, you know, it's not like in service of Howl or for Howl or anything. It's just like she's doing it because she wants to and it's important to her. That That's kind of always what Miyazaki's going for with this type of theme. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I think that I think it's mostly successful here. I don't have I didn't have too much issues um, with that watching. Um, it's just an excuse for her to be there, and then yeah, that's yeah. How, how it starts. And then she finds meaning in it and stuff, and more finds meaning in the work. Once once you know, and I mentioned speaking of scenes I love is the the when we go to Howl's secret garden. Um, all yes. the flowers are oh, on there. Yeah. And the water. Um, it's a beautiful gorgeous. scene. Gorgeous. Um, and then also, again, with the bombing, one of the best depictions of the war when you do see a single airship go down like, or you come into where their, their sacred space and how the yeah. contrast of the violence of that and the peacefulness and tranquility oh, wow. of uh, his garden, I think, is uh, pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So, and, yeah, the, a lot of these scenes are towards the end. And so are these really good, um, these really great scenes towards the end. What, what else uh, haven't we talked about? Um, with these with these scenes we did talk about the you said the scenes where they take the magic away from uh the witch of the waste and then when solomon mm-hmm. confronts howl and sophie that just like it felt like a bad trip but it was like beautifully done yeah. in a good in a good way in a, yeah <laughs> like i mean i want to like is there a were those actual words that the like stick figures were singing it was creepy as heck mm, but it's yeah yeah cool. she's like, the yeah. figures to try to like take away or like subdue him or something and, yeah like, yeah Sophie helps him break out of the trap. Um, yeah, those are some of my favorite scenes, definitely. And in the iconic scene, the fla- not the flashback, the like, oh, what is it? The timeline scene <laughs> where she like goes into a black hole back to the future. It's just cool. I did. Was that CG? Yeah. I'm not sure. I don't know. She goes to witness the 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 catching of the star and yeah um, yeah yeah and goes back yeah and then falls um, in the grass i thought it was like really well done very beautiful i'm just confused as to how it was done yeah it's it's uh it, it's very beautiful um the uh we i mean we could talk about this as another Miyazaki european kind of fantasy world we've talked about that in the past but um you know he's he a does Europe's that a lot phobia europe yeah. uh, there's span, a there's yeah. a word for it uh, oh you're God, a, a file. You're no, no, something no. Like that. Hold on, I'll find it. Uh, and then I think we talked about the ending. I want to talk about his Saishi score. This is the kind of last major thing to talk about. Is... What's oh. the term? <sighs> Tiabu. Tiabu? Yeah. Why? What's the T for? British culture. <laughs> oh, for like tea, like having tea. Okay. There's a um, there's a different term. That's not when the you one say there's thinking. a term for it, you meant like a slang word. Okay. Like, yeah. I no, like, not I'm going to look up the academic word for. <laughs> <laughs> you know me. I don't know academic things. This is like Tia-boo. slang. That was more in line. Yeah. That was more in line with <laughs> yeah. what we should expect. Okay. I'm going to talk about Joey Saishi's score. This is a very beloved score for Howl's Moving Castle. Um, 
this is, I think, potentially one that people would cite among his best work. Um, and uh, I haven't listened to it as much. I had a lot to say about the Spirited Away score. That's when I've heard a lot more. But um, I tried to listen through it um, to note some highlights. The biggest thing for me was the reoccurring theme of Sophie, Santa Sophie and Howell's theme, or what you might identify as the main theme of the movie, uh, depending. Uh, but it's just in many, many tracks on the soundtrack. It's it's part of Merry Go Round of Life, which is the opening on it that establishes a few a few themes throughout. It gets uh, a walk in the skies. We didn't mention the scene when she meets Howell and uh, magically they walk together um, above, like above the the city, um, which I think is a great one. Yeah. Um, and uh, that that plays there. Um, we have uh, Sophie in Exile, Unspoken Love, The Flower Garden. I mentioned that scene. Uh, Love Under Fire, Sophie's Castle towards the end. Um, so those are all scenes with that recurring theme through them, which I think is is uh, a great uh, musical yeah. component. Yeah. I'm a big fan movie. of reprisals, especially when they change in mood. It's like, <laughs> I love music, man. <laughs> uh, she does a lot of them for sure um, yeah. so I wanted to note Sa- Saliman's spell Return to the Castle which is the music that plays during this part we're talking about when uh, Howell and Sophie confront or Saliman confronts and traps them um, and they're like through the sky and stuff um, I think that's uh, that's a great one The Boy Who Swallowed a Star um, yes. the, the kind of the end just the ending to the, the movie underrated because um, everyone just remembers merry-go-round whatever <laughs> but yeah. the, the whole movie has a lot of great music yeah, and then the end credits a part is uh, partly merry-go-round. Also, um, it's its own thing. I think are, are gorgeous too. Yeah, a lot of the music towards the end. Yeah, the boy you swallow to start the end, Solomon's spell, and then yeah, all these all these gorgeous uh, romance theme ones the, throughout. Um, it's it's really good uh, soundtrack, I will say. There's and it's pretty. There's a lot of songs too. Yeah. Um, yeah. In this one. Um. Okay. Is there, April, anything on your minds that we've not talked about, Owls? No, not really. I am curious to, like, rewatch it now, especially, like, everything we talked about, because some things I'm like, okay, that kind of makes more sense, or at least, like, now I know what to look out for hmm. in terms of, like, rewatching it. Um, I'd be interested to read the book and see how it compares, but I'm lazy. <laughs> <laughs> Such a reading. Mood. It's a movie podcast. Reading is there? Yeah. <laughs> what is reading? I do. Ironically, I do my most reading in preparation for this movie podcast. I have to read the books about the. <laughs> yeah, but those are good analysis books. Any any Heen Heen the dog thoughts? Um, he was a good boy. Was yeah. he though? <laughs> No. He's, he's, he uh, activates the broadcast only at the end when he knows that Suleiman will see the Arab yeah. eyes. That's it. That's the only time. What a he's good boy. The bird working for the bourgeoisie, but a dog. I, I like that yes. she thinks he's Howell, and then it's like, no, it's just my dog. And yeah, that's funny. Who was the... guiding you here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's good regardless. He's not the best guy. He's good, though. Yeah. Good All boy. dogs are good. That's true. Yeah. That's a good boy. <laughs> that is true. Allie, any, Allie anything else from uh, Howell's? Um, not that I can think of. Same. I mean, I, I don't want to say I didn't like it, but it is definitely not one of my favorites. But, um, what I think I have to watch it again as a anti-war movie because I did my rewatch before I looked at the outline, and then seeing that, I was like, oh lord, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, um, well, watch this in the context of Miyazaki's pronouncement against the Iraq War. See how it yeah, yes, from, yes. from that one. <laughs> I'm curious because I think I'm gonna like it a lot more now with the propaganda flying around. Um. I don't know. It was good. 
Yeah, I think I mean I, I you know this isn't the top of my list on Miyazaki movies, but I I want to give this movie its due as good. Oh yeah, an iconic and I, Miyazaki movie. And I think that like yeah, like it's not my favorite Miyazaki movie, but I can definitely like see why this would be someone's favorite movie. Totally. So like ma- yeah, it's not to my taste, but it's a good. It's still like a very well done movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I think that that checks out, right? Like, even uh, there's just so much here to potentially latch onto, and um, you can, especially if you can just view it from this thematic sense, which I think we view a lot of uh, things we talk about in the podcast. Primarily, we try to view it from a thematic sense. Um, I think this movie is is definitely enhanced if you're kind of turning off that narrative. Yeah, your brain, and if you, and I think that, and I think that's a key, and also if you buy into the the grand Sophie Howell love story, I think it's going to play a lot better too. Um, but even without it, I mean, just Sophie's journey, I think is such a great thing to latch on to, um, the the presentation of her character. Um, so I, I think all in all, like I came in with a little bit of an anti-Howell bias to this whole process, this whole Ghibli rewatch. And, um, cause I had these like, oh, it doesn't make any sense. Yada, yada. You'll hear that a lot. I think I come out of it with a much greater appreciation for Howell, um, as there's, this is a gorgeous, um, very rich movie with a lot going for it. Um, and yeah, I do think it, maybe it's one of the ones which I would most want to rewatch just cause it's so visually striking. Um, so many like really good scenes, which I do want to see again. So, um, I think, I think that's, uh, uh, speaks well to it too. It's rewatchability. Mm. Okay. Um, any, any final comments? We good on Howl's moving castle? We good. <laughs> yeah. Gucci. We good. We Gucci. Gucci. Okay. Um, is that a Europe thing that we can... Oh, God. Wow, I didn't think of that. I'm still trying is, to find the real term there? for a European weeaboo, but it's I'm not, not going to be able to find it's it. It's not a tiaboo? I like No, there's, a, I know. there's another one. I'll find but it. But I will say, I think that this one is more set in, like, a German, like, village. Yeah, that's the thing. There's one that... That's the, like, British one. I'm trying to find the overall <laughs> European one. Uh, yeah, it says I... Slavaboo. Oh, because Slavic. Uh, <laughs> that's <laughs> stupid. <laughs> Miyazaki went to parts of France for in research for this movie. Kind of more, yeah, I mean, the more like rural France. I do think Germany's not a bad call, but uh, towards that side of France, yeah. Um, so to scout location like, for the movie. Do we know what for Kiki? Kiki, uh, Sweden. Yeah, oh, Kiki. okay. Yeah. So yeah, it's. I mean, you know, like uh, not the not the same part of Europe, but you know, he went location scouting to Europe in you know, kind of centralish. I don't know. Um, so yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of similarities there. Um, if, 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 comparing, like, you want to compare Howells and Kiki, I think that's really hard because they have a lot of, oh yeah, that's great, why when great, you guys brought that a lot up, of different like, great things. How is it comparable? <laughs> like I it's couldn't not, think of it. Just that the music feels very similar. Yeah. Yeah. The, like it's, the, fra- it's, the framing. Yeah. Is, the, uh, the framing. And also, and also involve, just the ri- the rich main characters too, I think. Yeah. yeah that's so. true. And they both involve magic. I have, I don't know, magic, magic and yeah. witches on the brain. So this was a good rewatch. Mm. <laughs> yeah, lose an Amity watching. Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Every part has Lumity. Ever, of course. Yeah, people don't know what that is. They're listening to this. They have no idea. <laughs> They're listening to the separate feed. They don't know it's what this fine. is. It's fine. Okay, they'll figure so it out. They'll figure it out. Let us know what you thought of Howls and all your thoughts on it. Overlyanimated.com. Find all the ways to contact us. Give us your thoughts on Howls Moving Castle. Consider supporting us via Patreon at patreon.com slash overlyanimated. Thanks to our current patrons, especially our patrons on the podcast, Ryan. And thanks as always to our patron executive producers, Ryan, Steve, Alex, Beatrice, Hugh, Michael, Needle, and Phonician. Uh, the Ghibli rewatch continues as we
we are firmly in the post spirited away post howls era now if you want to think of it like that um the next is tales from Earthsea, goro miyazaki's first film um if you thought there's criticism of howls out there wait till we get to tales from Earthsea, so we'll dive into that (laughs) probably probably similar criticisms of the narrative being thin but i don't know i haven't seen it in a while so i'm interested to see um if i gain a greater appreciation for tales from Earthsea. Mm. and then ponyo as mentioned so there's um yeah, I mean, we're past the ones which I have a super big attachment to, so we're going to get into some so to try to find appreciation for these later Ghibli films as we continue here. Okay. Um, I think that's it for How's Moving Castle. Thank you for listening, guys. We will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.